0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I tend to define cyber war as kinetic war carried on by plausibly deniable means.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I've got the story of a U.S. appeals court asking why a Facebook encryption order should remain sealed. Ben takes a look at the effects of GDPR, and later in the show, my conversation with Tara Wheeler. She's a cybersecurity policy fellow at New America, and she is also a well-known and respected author and speaker in cybersecurity topics. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash FedCyber. That's aka.ms slash FedCyber. And we are back. Ben, before we get into our stories this
2: week, you've got a little bit of follow up you wanted to share? Sure. So, we discussed on an episode probably several months ago now about a case making its way up to the Supreme Court coming from the state of Georgia. So, Georgia publishes a public version of its state code, basically all of its state statutes online. There is another version which includes both the code and legal annotations. So, that includes things like notes on relevant court cases, that is owned by a private company, LexisNexis. And LexisNexis has tried to assert an intellectual property right in that annotated code. And the case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And this past week, the Supreme Court came down with a 5-4 decision saying that there can be no intellectual property interest in the law. There's something called the government edicts doctrine, which emanates from a 19th century case. Basically, the court held in that case that no reporter, no media entity, nor anybody else could have a copyright claim in a court's opinion. And that has been extended in previous cases and in this case to laws drafted by the state legislature. Basically, the principle behind this doctrine is nobody can own the law. The law belongs to the people. Uh, so this decision came out this week. All will note, it was a very interesting cross-ideological coalition. Chief Justice Roberts authored the opinion. He was joined by a couple of the conservatives, uh, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and by a couple of the liberals, uh, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. So it's always interesting when you don't have a neat ideological opinion. But the upshot of this is you cannot have a copyright claim in a state code or a state annotated code. And the law does not belong to anybody but us, the people who are uh, subjected to it. All right. To me, that sounds like a, a good thing. Absolutely. Very good, sensible opinion in my view as well. And if you have a chance to, obviously, you probably don't want to read the whole case, but if you have a chance to at least read the syllabus of the case on SupremeCourt.gov, it'll give you a very interesting, brief history of the case and the rationale for the decision.
1: Yeah, I'm curious what the dissenting opinions might be. It's hard for me to imagine uh, a counter-argument here, but I suppose that's uh, the the justice's specialty, right? Yeah,
2: and there are actually two separate dissenting opinions. They dissented for different reasons, and I won't go into those different reasons, but definitely encourage uh, people to check that out. Well, let's get into our stories this week. Uh, Why don't you kick things off for us? Sure. So my story comes from The New York Times. It's entitled, Europe's Privacy Law Hasn't Shown Its Teeth, comma, frustrating advocates. So we're nearly two years after the enactment of GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in the European Union, and there has been frustratingly little progress in the minds of privacy advocates coming from this very promising, first of its kind law. And there are a number of problems that have plagued the law. Uh, So far, only one company has been subjected to fines under the law. It was a 50 million fine leveled against Google, which that's chump change. That's basically what Google makes in a day. Um, so <laughs> it, that's not much of a, a disincentive to that company. None of the other big tech companies have faced fines so far. They've been issued uh, warnings. There have been various GDPR led inquiries against some of their practices, but there have not been enforcement actions. Hmm. Uh, so there are a bunch of reasons this article mentioned why that's the case. One is the GDPR allows companies to ask any questions they want about enforcement actions and to get sort of advisory opinions on those questions. And companies seem to have used that provision of the law as a way to sort of kick the can down the road and kind of try to hope the regulators forget about the original problem and and move on to something else. You can kind of bore (laughs) them with a series of questions. Another huge problem has been the lack of resources. Many European countries have devoted a minuscule amount of their budget to enforcement of the GDPR. There's just a very small number of investigators. Even in countries where a lot of these companies are legally headquartered, which is Ireland, you've just seen very minimal budgetary resources devoted to the GDPR and uh, very few investigators working on fines and claims. What advocates of the GDPR will say is, it's still very early, the law is in its infancy. We're gonna start to see enforcement actions pick up as investigators are able to do uh, additional work and as more regulators are hired. But as hmm. we start to enter potentially a major global recession, which is gonna have a big impact on government budgets, it's hard for me to see how there are gonna be more investigators Investigators. Once countries are forced to sort of tighten their government belts, especially mm. those countries in the European Union, um, and this is really all of them who don't really have the authority to print their own money uh, to get themselves out of a recession. A couple of broader lessons here. This was supposed to be the model piece of legislation. Companies would finally be held accountable for their data practices, protecting personal information, giving the public a right to their private information. But it's sort of there's a difference between what the law was supposed to have done in theory and what actually happened in practice. And I think we'll just have to keep an eye on that, especially as we look toward other entities that have passed similar laws like the state of California. So, you know, I think there's still hope for the future, but this is just sort of a reality check that enforcement under the law has been very slow.
1: Yeah, this is fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I remember leading up to this, there was a lot of companies that were sort of holding their breath and taking a wait and see approach you know, how bad is this going to be in terms of enforcement? How is this going to to change things? Here, you know, There were some companies who got ahead of the law and uh were proactive. And there were other companies who chose as a balancing their risk to be reactive, to say, well, we're going to see how this really plays out and how the enforcement, uh, you know, and it seems like maybe they have, they won the bet so far.
2: Yes. Now it is worth pointing out that even though fines have not been levied, the GDPR has forced companies to to take the sort of preemptive actions you've talked about. So for example, in this article, they mentioned that Facebook delayed the release of its dating app. I had no idea Facebook was intending to have a dating app. (laughs) To me, that seems like a bad idea, but that's a topic for another uh, another podcast. And that's because Irish authorities had raised questions about its data collection practices. So Facebook Mm. went back to the drawing board to try to address those concerns without actually facing a fine. So you can sort of compel enforcement just by being... You know, saying like, hey, we could levy a fine against you, even if we have not so far. You gotta go back and, and make sure your practices are are in compliance with the law. But for the most part, you know, it has been a good bet for most of these tech companies to be like, you know, this is not gonna break us. Let's not completely reinvent the wheel. You know, let's take this enforcement action by enforcement action and fight this law on its own terms. And I, I think you're right that's become a, a pretty good proposition for these companies.
1: Yeah, the other thing that strikes me about this is that what I've heard with folks I've interviewed in industry is that they want consistency. Set some regulations, tell me what they are, allow me to follow them, approach them the way I want to, you know, manage my risk. But Consistency is is much better than volatility, and I wonder, in terms of setting expectations as we go forward, will they be bringing more enforcement online? Will it continue to run this way? That's something that I imagine these companies
2: really have their eyes on. Absolutely. And there are a couple of things that I think will undermine the effort to enforce some of the more robust data protections. We talked about the potential for a global recession. Another thing this article mentions is privacy in the age of the COVID 19 epidemic. There is an exception contained within the GDPR about public health emergencies, which allows the sort of uh, contact tracing from applications that we're starting to see in many European countries right now. Europe was hit especially hard by the coronavirus, although probably in the aggregate about as hard as as we've been hit here in the United States, but they've suffered a lot of cases and fatalities. And the GDPR provides legal grounds to enable employers and competent public health authorities to process personal data in the context of epidemics. So that's going to be something else as we're we're stuck in the age of COVID-19 that might undermine the robust uh, protections of the law. So, you know, in terms of companies that are unsure about whether compliance is going to start to ramp up, whether there's going to be additional capability to levy fines, I think for better or worse, you know, there are a lot of reasons to doubt that that's about to happen.
1: All right. We'll keep an eye on it uh, as it continues to play out. My story this week, uh, I must admit, uh, I, I put this one in uh, partly because uh, I figured you would get a kick out of it. This one uh, goes a little bit into the, the legal weeds, but I know I can count on you to explain it ah, to yes. us uh, <laughs> love the legal weeds
2: <laughs> <laughs> everyone this else wants a- to buy legal weeds killer at their local garden store <laughs> right yeah, right. I'm yeah against they want
1: Legal weed whacker. Yeah. That's, uh, you should put that on your business card, Ben. You've uh. I, I, just given me a great idea. <laughs> so uh, this is a story from Reuters uh, written by Joseph Men, and it's titled, U.S. Appeals Court Asks Why Facebook Encryption Order Should Stay Sealed. And this uh, centers around a group of federal appeals court judges who have asked prosecutors why a lower court could seal a ruling that absolved Facebook from having to wiretap a criminal suspect using one of the company's encrypted services. And uh, evidently, the three members of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, has some pointed questions towards the prosecutors as to why this should stay sealed. There are many layers to this. Can you sort of help unpack what's going on here?
2: Sure. So I'll start with the basics. The Wiretap Act allows the government to compel telecommunications companies to track criminals in various ways. Now there's some nuance as to whether that applies to tech companies there are other authorities along with the Wiretap Act that would force, for example, a Facebook to release information to the government about a potential the writings of a criminal suspect or that suspect's Facebook post, Facebook messages. This gets very complicated when we're talking about encrypted applications like Facebook Messenger. So there was some sort of case where there was a criminal suspect. We don't know much about it because, as this article mentions, the opinion has been seized. It's been completely redacted. But law enforcement, federal law enforcement, tried to make Facebook break its own end to end encryption, which protects voice calls placed over Facebook Messenger. I'm sure we're seeing many more voice calls and video calls through Facebook Messenger during this pandemic. The U.S. District Court, uh, federal court, came down with a decision saying for whatever reason, and that reason has not been released, it's been sealed, Facebook did not have to comply with that order. Now, all of these civil liberties groups like the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation are saying, hey, we have a right to see what the rationale of that case was, because that can give us insight into how far the government's powers extend in terms of compelling companies to decrypt their own networks or decrypt their own applications, break their own end-to-end encryption. And because this opinion is sealed, they do not know what the legal rationale is, meaning they can't adjust their own strategies and they can't advise some of the companies that they represent as to how they can react if they face some sort of subpoena to break end-to-end encryption. So the case made it up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, based in California. Many of these Facebook, Google cases end up in that circuit. Is that because that's where those companies are located? Exactly, exactly. Okay. So Silicon Valley. This case about whether to unseal the district court opinion was heard at oral arguments, virtual oral arguments, I should mention,
1: um, in (laughs) front
2: of a three-judge panel on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, we don't have the opinion itself yet, but they seem to indicate that they were very skeptical of why. This case had been redacted, why this case had been completely sealed at the district court level, saying at least indicating that there is significant public interest here. We should know how these laws are being applied, what the district court's rationale was, whether that holds precedential value. What the prosecutors have said is if that district court opinion is released, it will reveal investigative methods used by the federal government. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. How many times federal prosecutors have talked about, oh, this is going to reveal our investigatory methods. Mm -hmm. We need to keep this information sealed, redacted for national security, for law enforcement purposes. It seems like they sort of fall back on that justification a lot. And so I'm not sure whether this three judge panel is going to buy that argument. And it's possible that they will unseal that district court opinion and we can actually get information as to why Facebook was not forced to break their own encryption system.
1: So the argument they're making here, help me understand, is that we don't necessarily need to see the details of the case, but we're entitled to see why the judges in this
2: case made the decisions that they made. Right. They want to see the legal rationale. That's what the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation are saying. They are not interested in, well, exactly what techniques did the prosecutor use? They're interested in, okay, how does the Wiretap Act apply to encrypted communications?
1: And they're saying that for for those details, go ahead and redact those details that could affect national security, for example.
2: You know, block those out. That's not necessarily what we're interested in. Sure. And that is done in tons and tons of cases. That happens all the time. You know, wiretap okay. applications by definition and by custom are typically sealed. Many of those applications have been subsequently released with confidential or classified information redacted, just because the public has an interest in knowing what those legal rationales are. So it seems to me a very equitable solution here would be release the legal rationale, but do not release details on the investigatory tactics. Now, what the prosecutors might say is you cannot describe the legal rationale without describing the investigatory tactics. That's fine. And I think the Court of Appeals will have to balance the public interest and knowing how this law is being applied versus the public interest in having, you know, the Justice Department's digital investigative teams have their methods and sources protected. That's a difficult dilemma to weigh. I'm not saying it's necessarily easy. You know, my viewpoint would generally be because there are so many companies out there using end-to-end encryption, it's important for those companies and the public to know exactly in which cases the government could gain access to that information. Mm -hmm. Um, And that would sort of be the superseding value I would apply here. It's so hard to know, though, because you don't know the facts of the district court case. You know, you don't know the severity of the crime that the suspect has been charged with. We just don't know anything. So, you know, it's hard to say from that perspective. I would lean towards transparency as as sort of I always do. And it seems like that's, you know, the way that the judges on this three-judge panel were leaning as well, based on what we heard at these oral arguments.
1: Now, do the judges on that three-judge panel... Do they get to see all of the information in the sealed case? Are, are they allowed to look inside there?
2: Yes, they are. They're allowed to look and they can determine based on what they see in that district court opinion, whether to release that information to the public. So they themselves as judges have access to it. And then I'll also mention the three judge panel could make a decision. Sometimes what happens is the losing party will appeal for a decision on bank, meaning the entire Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Would hear that case. And that's a panel of something like 20 different judges. I don't see that necessarily happening in this case, but just something to keep in mind. If the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU lose this case, they might appeal to have the case reheard on banc. Um, If they lose that appeal, they might appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court. So definitely something for us to keep our eye on.
1: Yeah. Also, uh, just a quick shout out. One of the folks mentioned in this article is Stanford cryptography policy expert, Rihanna Pfefferkorn, who we have had as a guest on our show. And, Friend of the uh, pod. You and I are both uh, big fans of. So uh, <laughs> just yeah. a little shout out to her. We've had a lot yeah. of
2: great guests. She was one of our best. So, yeah. And she was one of the people quoted in this article. So yeah. definitely read the article if, if just for her quotes themselves. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, those are our stories uh, for this this week. If you have a question for us, we would love to hear from you. We've got a call in number. It's 410 618 3720. That's 410 618 3720. You can also email us your question to caveat at the cyberwire.com. Coming up next, my conversation with Tara Wheeler. She is a cybersecurity policy fellow at New America. Stay around for that. It is an interesting discussion for sure. But first, a word from our sponsors. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. And we are back. Uh, Ben, I recently uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Tara Wheeler, uh, someone who I have been uh, looking forward to talking to you for quite a while. I uh, actually had the pleasure of meeting her at the RSA conference this year, and uh, we chatted, and she agreed to come on the pod. She is a cybersecurity policy fellow at New America, uh, a well-respected uh, speaker and uh, expert on many things in cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Tara Wheeler. In your estimation, when asked, how do you define cyber war? That's always the most interesting question
0: I get asked. It's the hardest question because so much of the debate around cyber conflict and cyber war is based on whether or not it actually is war or not. So I think one of the the reasons this subject matters to me is without a definition of cyber war, you can't do things like define cyber war crimes or cyber collateral damage. So the work I'm doing at the moment is about how we define cyber collateral damage in healthcare systems after nation state sponsored cyber attacks, such as WannaCry in 2017. And one of the things I started to realize was why it was so hard to define cyber war, because any of the people who would or could agree with you on the definition have a lot of capital tied up in the notion that warfare is something you do with tanks. And only reluctantly do you get Concepts like biological warfare tied into the concept of real war. And one of the ways that I've started to define cyber war is begin with an analogy. We know that in the 1700s that British and American soldiers seeded Native people's trade goods with smallpox. We know it. We know that this was part of the sustained campaign to depopulate the North American continent for white settlement. And there is no one now who would disagree that that was an act of biological warfare. It's just just not the case that you would ever do that. At the time, it was argued that it had no part of warfare. It was not something that was part of the traditional or typical tactics of a kinetic campaign. And since the soldiers weren't physically there when the people were dying or being attacked by these germs, they asserted that they had no part of it being called a war. I don't think anybody would doubt now That the human body is a battleground in biological warfare. And I think 100 years from now, the question of whether or not a state-sponsored attack that ties up hospital records, that causes people to die for lack of information over whether or not they have drug interactions or are incapable of accessing machines because the powers come down, I don't think there's any question 100 years from now that we're going to call this cyber warfare. And yet, Right at the moment, it's difficult to get people to, to circle around the definition of what cyber war is. The best that I've been able to come up with, and partially in a, in a nod to my esteemed elders and partially to make sure they understand what I'm talking about, I tend to define cyber war as kinetic war carried on by plausibly deniable means. Yeah. When you define it that way, you start to give people the ability to say, "Ah, I can see how people might view the concept of cyber war as something that is intended to be hidden and tough to define because that's one of the tactics of its use. So, yeah, yeah, it's
1: interesting. Well, but that leads me to the question do you suppose that this reticence to define it is intentional, that, that it allows nation states and, and others who benefit from this their ability to have that plausible deniability to keep things sort of fuzzy?
0: Without any hesitation. And what's more, instead of giving you a historical example, I'll give you a contemporary example that is separated from the major power players in terms of distance, not in time. These are proxy wars that are happening. It's just that instead of using Nicaragua or Vietnam to prosecute policy aims, what we're seeing is people using AWS and Azure, right? We're seeing people using Python scripts as their version of a proxy war. There's simply not a doubt that these attacks are being carried out by nation states who could doubt that at that point. But the question we come around to is, are we trying to not define these things as warfare, exactly as you said, in order to be able to take advantage of the flexibility and tactics and operational leeway that gives us? Yes, absolutely.
1: You know, there's, there's this notion that, that I think we see a lot in popular media that we need to be bracing ourselves for some sort of cyber Pearl Harbor or perhaps a, a 9-11. Do you suppose that's a possibility? Are things going to play out that way?
0: The thing that I have said, it's kind of funny, when I get asked about this question, inevitably, when is the cyber Pearl Harbor coming soon, says expert, is what gets quoted on me. No, (laughs) I don't think that 9-11 is the example that's going to get used. And I'll tell you why it matters right now. In talking about, quote, cyber Pearl Harbor, what I have said is that when we have that event that sears what the example of nation state level cyber war looks like, it will not look like Pearl Harbor and it will have its own name. We won't need to compare it to something else because it will be seared into our collective consciousness as its own sui generis event and act, right? We're never going to have to describe the COVID-19 crisis, this global pandemic as, well, it was like that one time we had the Spanish flu. Remember that time back then? Because this is the thing that has seared itself into our consciousness. So I don't think there's going to be a cyber Pearl Harbor. I think when it happens, it's going to have its own name and we're not going to need to ask why. We're not going to compare it to anything else.
1: What is your take on on what I would describe as some of the good faith efforts to uh, establish some global norms when it comes to these things? I'm I'm thinking specifically of things like the Talon Manual.
0: Mm, Talon Manual, I agree. In, in such awe of the audacity of the b- group of scholars that got together to put together the, to- the, the Talent Manual. And this is, I think, originally 2014, 2015 is when they did their original work. And then February 2017 was when they put out um, Talent Manual point, uh, 2.0. I think that the most important thing that the work of the Talent scholars, when they put together the, this document, especially in the second version of it in 2017, was to define the difference between cyber warfare and cyber operations. What they did... They there was they gave us a more specific way to tell whether or not something rose to the level of nation state combat or whether it hovered underneath it in the operational territory that didn't quite justify an all out response under the norms of warfare previously. That's the most important thing that they did. It gives us something of a bright line beyond which something should be considered cyber war. And so their work is influential and at the same time it is voluntary and these experts were convened, yes, by NATO, but that's not an official NATO document. It's considered Mm. a work of international legal experts that can be used to advise policy. It doesn't have the official stamp of anything on it, and that's because people want to have their operational flexibility, I'm going to guess.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think domestically cybersecurity is pointed out as something that has bipartisan support and that it is unusual in that way, that it it hasn't really been overtly politicized the way that many other things have. I'm curious what your perspective is on— uh, global leadership on this—who is in the position to take the lead to try to move things forward internationally?
0: Well, it depends on if you're asking whether or not move things forward internationally is prosecute a successful cyber war or set up international norms around that process. Hmm. I guess I'm, I'm serious. Which which of those two things is it?
1: Well, I was thinking to establish norms. Why don't we just begin there?
0: Okay, to establish norms. That is, from what I've seen of regulatory frameworks, the European Union is almost certainly set up to be the regulation giver when it comes to norms in cyber conflict, partially because they deal with internal conflict and the kind of low-level operations, even among member states. Uh, No, I don't want to make too controversial a statement on that one, that would let them get that experience. Second, we also see that in cybersecurity in general, the European Union tends to be the regulation giver, as they were for GDPR a couple of years ago. And it's, it's an interesting thing to see. So I think that we're going to see for, for the creation of norms. We saw, for instance, in I think it was November 2018, the Paris call for Accord in cyberspace. And that was one of the answers internationally to how do we create peace in cyberspace. I think that's the place we're going to see it come from.
1: What do you make of, of calls I've seen from some people, even uh, former folks in the military who've said that you know, we need a, a fifth branch of our military to deal with cybersecurity for it, for it to be its own department.
0: I think it's very telling that you're describing speaking to former members of the military. I don't think it's a popular hmm. view inside the current military, if only because IT is seen as a support function in all of the branches. I think it's we're having a hard time explaining that, first of all, the Internet is a real place to people who operate, you know, tank divisions. How do you explain to them that... Taking down an electrical grid can have the same kind of devastation on non-combatants during a heat wave that anything that they do with the physical movement of troops and materiel might have. And a lot of people, I think, are bound up in the idea that the work that they're doing, the political capital they've spent, and the careers that they've succeeded in, in running a conventional military, would be somehow magically seen as less valuable if we acknowledge the existence of this other space. I don't think that's the case. And I think that the smartest people I know in the military are trying as hard as they can to prepare people for the idea that this is a separate place that we're doing battle. The best example I've seen and the most powerful example of that is probably Trident Juncture, the NATO military exercises in late 2018, Hmm. when after the first 12 hours of conflict between, I think it was 29 member states or 27 member states plus two, We saw the entire exercise come to a screeching halt because as soon as about six keyboards got working, the targeting navigation communication systems in the war game itself were no longer operational. The cyber warriors, they wiped the floor of the North Atlantic with this exercise. They were decommissioned for the rest of that exercise. And no one's ever released the results (laughs) of that particular form of attack. Basically, what happened was they uh, the, the people running this exercise collaborated to say, we're going to pretend computers don't exist for the next two weeks so that we can make sure that our planes and our boats and our people can operate and communicate and we can get our, our exercises done. Now, to hmm. anybody looking at that, that might have been a sensible decision in the moment because they'd already committed so much material and personnel in that moment. For those of us who sit behind a keyboard, we're looking at it going, why didn't you just pay a little bit more attention to the the few keyboards in Tulin and wherever else that took this exercise down. That tells you that there is an interesting force multiplication factor behind a keyboard that doesn't exist anymore when it comes to sailing ships someplace
1: it's interesting to me, even the perception of how we protect ourselves, the, the distinction between the public sector and the private sector. You know, if, I, if I'm a, uh, running a, an electrical system, if, if I'm in, in charge of that, you know, I rely on the military, uh, the National Guard of my country to defend against anyone coming and attacking me physically. But f- from the cyber point of view, I, it's really up to me engaging with the private sector, largely to take care of my defense is there.
0: That is correct. And the problem is, is there's not a good answer for that at the moment. We're, we're seeing some interesting work being done on nationalization of resources to keep people alive, but it's not militarily focused. It's focused entirely around this pandemic. And I don't know what lessons are going to come out of this. I am as, as a private citizen concerned that we're going to see the, the deprecation of a lot of the rights we've enjoyed as American citizens hmm. paired with the ability to protect the U.S. better, but also paired with the same frank incompetence we've seen on the cyber level from this current administration. And if we see that happening, we're going to actually see the creativity and innovation of the private sector stifled more than it's able to assist. I think that's that's going to be the, the place we're going to end up. And I'm, I'm I'm working to see that that doesn't happen, as I think many people are, who are, are working hard on this project of making sure that our, our country, our globe, is safe from bad actors while also acknowledging that some of our tools are not ready-made to hand for that process.
1: In in your vision, what would be an ideal way that something like a Digital Geneva Convention would play out? How would that process work? How would that be something that we could achieve?
0: I think that the Paris call in 2018 was incredibly powerful. The fact that it took a multi-stakeholder approach is key. And I think that the U.S., for instance, if it wanted to play any part in a leadership role in that kind of digital Geneva Convention, is losing time to be in a leadership role. Eventually, it's going to be a question of simply signing on to what 100 other nations have done if the U.S. doesn't actively participate in a multi-stakeholder approach. And the problem with the multi-stakeholder approach is that in the U.S., we tend to let the military run our cyber conflict policy and i think that we already have frankly seen what this is going to start to look like it's going to look like either more people signing on to the paris call or a revision of that in future much like the to manual got revised again and again to to address current situations Uh, we're going to see the paris call revised or we'll see something that that helps to replace it and i think that if the the question of u.s leadership is brought up that at the moment, I, I don't see a lot of leadership happening there on the international policy stage. We're actually great. And I'll, as a as a private citizen, I'll note that I think uh, CISA is doing a fabulous job right now, brokering hmm. and handling vulnerabilities, equities between the private and public sector in the United States. But that's not a policy position. That's just the CISO of the U.S., basically. So the policymakers in cyber warfare functionally don't exist in the U.S. Those have been gutted out of the State Department, out of um, even the military at this point. There's no White House central core around cybersecurity policy that is functional. And I've been to a lot of these meetings at this point, and there's very rarely any U.S. presence at the policymaker level. There are often people with expertise in compliance in U.S. government there, but there's no policy arm of the U.S. government handling this anymore. I, uh, it's it's depressing, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for you, but I, I guess the question, that the, the answer is, I have a good answer for you, I just don't like giving it.
2: All right, Ben, wh- what do you think? very interesting conversation about sort of the state of international policy related to cyber warfare. Um, One thing that was sort of unsettling from the interview is just the extent to which the United States has not really been proactive and being involved in this broader conversation about defining Hmm. cyber warfare. I think we've lost a lot of time and influence uh, because we've been reluctant to join that effort. I think another thing that stuck out to me is, you know, we've often talked about what the 9-11 or or Pearl Harbor event will be that sort of ignites an interest in cyber war fair. Um, mm-hmm. And she made a really interesting point that there's not going to be a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor event it's going to be its own unique event it's going to be unlike you know any threat we've ever faced in the past and that's just mm-hmm. the nature of cyber warfare it's different there is going to be potentially some physical impact if we talk about things like damage to critical infrastructure but it's not going to be uh, an experience that, that will remind us of anything else and I think that's an important message particularly 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 to people who are not well versed in the subject of cyber warfare.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that stuck with me since uh, she and I chatted was you know, when I brought up to her that some of the folks that I have spoken with, uh, former military people, had suggested you know that we even may need a another branch of the military, a, a cyber branch. And, and she brought up a really interesting insight was, which was basically you know how interesting that these are all former military people like, who have that point of view. That it's not the people in the service who are thinking
2: that way. And she basically said the people in the service look at cyber. As kind of an IT issue, and you know that's in in some ways kind of disturbing to hear. Just as as you know, you and I have followed this closely and realize the potential physical threat of cyber warfare to all of our well being. I hope it is taken more seriously, especially as we face threats from state actors, non state actors, and especially as this, this threat grows in the future.
1: Now, a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E dot com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.